I'm Sarah Worthington. I'm the Pro-Director for Research and External Relations here. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Danny Kwa, giving the second of the lectures in this series, Thinking Like a Social Scientist. Before I say anything about Danny, I just want to say a little bit about this series. Um, it's the first time we've done this kind of thing at the LSE. And it came, the idea came about if I'm honest, over a glass of wine and dinner with a couple of friends, where I was musing that although we're all at what we like to think of as at least one of the best social science institutions at the world, in the world, not very many of us know a great deal about the tools and the work of people who are outside our own discipline. And you would think that it would be impossible to emerge from the LSE without having at least a conversational knowledge of what people in other social science disciplines do. Now, of course, we could make you all do courses and be assessed on them and that kind of thing, give you bits of paper. But it seemed relatively easy to give you something more digestible, I suppose. And so this series of nine lectures, every Thursday, one o'clock, this term, is a small step in trying to increase your general knowledge of the other disciplines, and I bet a lot of you are economists here, but the other disciplines in the social sciences, um, in talks given by some of our leading experts in those disciplines. So this is one of the lectures to that end. And I have to say, I've been really pleased by the very positive response that this series has got. I think the only complaint I've had is, can't get to it because I've got a conflict. Can you please put it on at another time? And I have to say, I'm in that position today. I have a conflict, and I've told them I'll be 10 minutes late, but I'm going to do the beginning of this. For those of you who do have conflicts, or for the people who can't fit into this space, uh, the lectures are eventually put as podcasts on uh, the event's website. So if you want to listen again, you can go back to the podcast. Now to Danny. Um, Danny is probably known to all of you here, I think. Danny is the head of the economics department at the LSE, and we like to think that the economics department here is one of the best economics departments in the world. But in that class, Danny is a pretty special economist. And I know academics do all their research on Google these days, but I thought I would Google Danny before I came here. And usually when I Google my colleagues, you get thousands and thousands of hits, but not all of them are the person you're Googling. Well, I got to about page nine, and I thought, all of them are Danny so far. I give up. You know, they're all Danny. Um, but the bit that I want to pick out is that in 2001, uh, Danny was named as one of only ten ESRC heroes of dissemination. So I think he's going to be able to do this us. And on that note, can I hand over to Danny to talk to you about thinking like a social scientist from an economist perspective. Thank you, Sarah. It's a great pleasure to be here. Before I begin formally, can I just have a rough show of hands? How many people here are economists or have economics training? Okay. So about 50-50. Excellent. Thank you. Give me a minute while I switch to my own presentation. Okay. This is, as Sarah says, uh, one in a series of lectures on how different social scientists think. I'm here to talk about economists. Obviously, economists are a diverse bunch. It is not just an idle joke that when you put three economists in a room, you get five different opinions. So what I'm going to talk to you about is not how all economists think, or even how most economists think, but how some economists think. And at the end of today's lecture, I might end up with just how one economist, when he's alone in the quiet of his office and no one else is pounding on him in a seminar, thinks. This lecture today is being delivered in a university, obviously. And, but I say that because I hope that conventions of free speech and academic debate will allow me to say certain things 
this afternoon that I would not as readily do otherwise if I were addressing, say, journalists or alumni gatherings or business or policy groups. I hope that these comments that I make, some of which might seem, I hope, outrageous, will be taken in the right spirit. Now, when some months ago, Sarah, as she has described, approached several of us about these lunchtime lectures, and I agreed to deliver one on economics for today, the 24th of January, I didn't think that any, I didn't think anyone then could ever have expected that this week would be one when stock markets around the globe would fall up to 9% over a single day. The whole world would be waiting with bated breath to see if this today is the beginning of a global meltdown in economic activity. No one would have suspected that the Federal Reserve would off-schedule and hurriedly cut its benchmark interest rate in one fell swoop by more than at any time in the last quarter of a century. Today is also the beginning of the three-day meeting in Davos when the great and the good gather at the World Economic Forum, an annual meeting that's been set up modestly but appropriately, I think, to solve the world's largest economic problems. And there, we will read in blogs and on BBC reports, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of very smart and very powerful people will try to be, well, to be like economists in the way they think and work through the world's largest economic problems. Now, in the midst of all this frenzied activity outside, this afternoon with me standing in front of you has got to seem like a damp squib. There's already so much exciting, high-powered, real-life economic thinking, the very best kind, going on out there in real time and with squigillions of US dollars at stake. On top of all that, as some of you might know, next week sees publication of Tim Harford's The Logic of Life. This is a book that together with Steve Levitt's Freakonomics promises to uncover yet more economic insights in the most unlikely places in everyday life. Those, if you read the FT diligently, as, as I do, you'll recognize Tim Harford is the individual who writes the Undercover Economist column in the FT. The pre-publication copy of his book begins with an economic analysis of a problem that has taken suburban America by storm. What problem is that? I quote, in the very best schools, in the nicest families, in the leafiest neighborhoods, 12 and 13-year-old girls are performing oral sex on as many boys as they can. So perhaps the biggest disappointment you need to brace yourself for this afternoon, this presentation is not going to be about oral sex. Tim Harford does that, and he does that expertly. If you read that exposition, he gets right into economics beat. He talks about complements and substitutes of different kinds of sexual behavior. He talks about relative prices and maximizing utility. He talks about how natural experiments in the way different U.S. states have attempted different laws surrounding teenage abortion, and also as information filters differentially to different people on sexual practice and HIV-AIDS affliction has influenced behavior, all of which is explicable from the perspective of how an economist thinks. And even, you will see if you read that book, the emergence of given goods. Remember that section in Economics B that we thought would never be useful? The reader can actually see in Harford's description income and substitution effects. Although Harford wisely, I think, leaves to the reader's imagination by that point, the Slutsky equation that is hidden away somewhere in all that raw, naked animal behavior. Today's talk is about not taking away anything from these examples of real-life economic problems, the world's largest economic problems, or the new economics of everything, uncovering economic logic in everyday life. What I want to tell, tell you about are the common principles in all of this discussion, 
I want to take you through my own collection of economic examples that I think useful to think about when we try and work through the application and the applicability of economics. I want to strike a bar, I want to strike a medium between the kinds of everyday life activity that you see described in Harvard and Levitt's Freakonomics and elsewhere with the large-scale global economic problems that we see discussed at Davos. All of these discussions begin from a common place. Where economists begin is a supposition that people react to incentives and signals. They respond to pain and to pleasure. And in this response, people realize that they can't live beyond their means forever. You can't do things that are infeasible or not available to you. Two very basic ideas, ideas that you work through over and over in economics B, and in fact, in every single economics course that you take, in every economics application that you read about, in the FT or on Davos blogs or anywhere else. Stated a little bit more technically, people respond to incentives and they respond purposefully to incentives. People take into account that budget constraints matter. They can't do things that they cannot afford. They take into account the interactions that they have with other people, how that affects the pain and pleasure that they experience, and how that affects their budget constraints. And they realize we have just seen the biggest binge of borrowing in the world as the United States now runs a current account deficit each year that exceeds the entire annual GDP of India, that while you cannot, while you can temporarily live beyond your means, you cannot put the day of reckoning off forever. At some point, the future bites, and you need to take that into account. Okay. Economists use these basic ideas then to understand the things that we see around us. We're not allowed to say that behavior is random, but instead it's explicable and predictable. The example of Harvard's analysis and Steve Levitt's analyses show that over and over again. There is, in the literature, a new economics of everything developing that attempts to understand the things that we see around us, all the things that we see around us. <coughs> Sexual behavior, criminal behavior, gambling, marriage, live-at-home drug dealers, racism, marriage, the formation of ghettos, how sumo, sumo wrestlers behave, all of that's explicable from one or two very basic principles. We apply this to understand all kinds of markets, financial markets that we are re that now at the center of everyone's attention, but everything else as well. Market for labor, the search and matching and unemployment experience that entire economies go through, markets for information, as the internet and the World Wide Web and Google continue to push forward the possibilities for different kinds of trade, exchange, and development. Economists want to understand interactions and formalize this in game theory. When they take the future into account, they think about economic growth, and when they try and, and when they understand how outcomes dif differ for different people, that is a problem in the distribution of income. Economists use these basic principles. They target towards understanding the kinds of observations that I've laid out here. And we have an interest in outcomes, an attempt to understand the scientific basis for how outcomes emerge the way they, are, they, they have. And also, if an outcome is, is agreed upon to be deficient in some way, to try and repair that. One problem that encompasses all of these issues is the problem of economic growth. Why is it that some countries grow faster than others? Why is it that some countries are richer than others? Or as one famous writer said, the fundamental question of economics is looking across countries, looking across Russia, the United Kingdom, Sweden, the United States, India, China, Malaysia, Papua New Guinea, why do some places prosper and thrive while others just suck? They are just plain bad at economic performance. They do not deliver the goods. Well, economics, applying these principles, of course, seeks to go beyond 
acknowledging those principles every time and comes up with a few tentative schema for characterizing the world. Different economists will characterize our perceptions of the world in different ways. My own bias is to think about the world in terms of trade-offs, to fall back to the basic principles of economic behavior to understand these trade-offs, to understand why some places grow faster and others do not, to understand why income distribution and income inequality emerge in the kinds of patterns that we see. Those are all issues of trade-offs. Understanding those trade-offs, understanding the trade-offs that policymakers confront is the practical and policy implication, practical and policy application of economics. A taxonomy that I find useful, without going into detail, is to say economics has taught us there are five different kinds of trade-offs. The first of, in order of significance and difficulty, the first of these is where no trade-off is actually present, where the things that are good for the world are also things that are good for the individual. And so the mantra that emerges from that kind of economic thinking in certain applications, in certain examples, is that you do good in the world by doing well for yourself. By seeking profit, the merchant seeks ever more efficient ways of producing product. By seeking profit, traders deliver goods more efficiently and faster to the people who want it most. They do good in the world by doing well for themselves. This is the Adam Smith view of the world. This is a world where markets operate, where property rights are respected, and where actions are decentralized through a price system. It is a magical world because all you have to do is sit back and marvel at how it works. This is the first of the examples where there is no trade-off. Social gain is simply aligned with individual incentive. A second instance is where trade-offs are imagined to be there, but economics, economic research teaches us that that trade-off is virtual and illusory. I want to take us through some examples of that, or at least one. So running through quickly, the rest of these the others where the trade-offs are actually substantive, but it's not what most people who are not economists, who are not trained social scientists think. And here, I think the mission of the school, the LSE, as an institution of social science learning, can achieve a lot, can do a lot of good in the world by making people understand the trade-offs that are hard but that give us new insight, but so where social science gives us new insight into how things work. And then examples four and five are where really hard examples show up. Economic research, frontier economic research often gets to that point, but sometimes does not. So what I want to do now to illustrate how economists think is to go through some examples of these. And the examples that, as I said, try and illustrate the medium between the great and the good sitting down somewhere trying to solve the world's largest economic problems on the one extreme. And on the other extreme, I was sitting in our offices thinking about what the world is like and then co constructing simple models, simple insights into why the behavior emerges the way that it has. The examples that I want to take us through are real life examples where policy actions properly understood have immense impact on people's lives where economics has something interesting to say. Let me begin in order of where I have more things to say, in, in order where I have least things to say, because they're substantive and hard and difficult. No one really knows the answer. But let me flag for you what those problems are, and then work backwards to where economics has a lot to say, and it remains simply for us to convince policymakers on the actions that are appropriate. Example one for substantive and hard to quantify is the current credit crunch. Many of us appreciate how financial markets are in the straits that they are in now because at some point in the last 20, 25 years, financial market participants became overconfident. They thought that regardless of what happened to their business, they would always be protected. In the financial markets jargon, this is sometimes known as the Greenspan put an option 
that guarantees the owner of the put the right to sell at a certain pre-specified price. Regardless of how low the price falls, the person who has that option, holds that option, is guaranteed from that downside risk. In some discussion, Alan Greenspan is imagined or is thought to have implemented this put by guaranteeing that regardless of what happened in financial markets, he would stand ready to lower interest rates to a point where economic activity and financial market activity would pick up again. People were protected from downside risk. Okay. In some of the jargon, this is referred to as a moral hazard. You don't discourage people when you have a Greenspan put in operation. You don't discourage people enough to shy away from taking on risk. People take on too much risk. And when everything unfolds, as they seem to have since last August, you then face the problem of what you do. Here, there's an obvious trade-off. Alan Greenspan thought long and hard when he was undertaking interest rate policy through the 90s in the United States about whether to lower interest rates to a point where financial market turmoil, incipient or otherwise, could be kept away from harming the economy more broadly. The solution that they undertook was to lower interest rates. That kept financial markets healthy. It kept the broader, kept the broader economy growing strongly. But the put option allowed financial market participants to become overly confident. The trade-off here is between the ex-post action, where a disaster is already imminent and you have to undertake action to protect the economy, versus the ex-ante incentive problem of keeping people healthily away from too much risk. The problem here is where, when you want to allow innovation in financial markets or elsewhere, but at the same time keep the disasters away from putting the economy into a deep recession. Greenspan took one view on what that trade-off looked like, and that view was what emerged um, in the new millennium. It is a substantive and hard problem. As far as I know, no one has actually quantified whether Greenspan did the right thing. It is a real-life problem because we seem to be headed into a similar situation now. A second problem that is large-scale and global is that of global warming. Now, when, you, when as many of us did, listen to Al Gore, watch the movie, we see disaster scenarios where Shanghai, one of my favorite cities in the world, is buried under feet and feet of seawater, when London could potentially vanish from the earth, where life as we know it will forever be different. That disaster scenario is useful for bringing to people's attention the problems that are emerging. But at that level, it does not actually tell us how we should change our behavior. What we need to do is to quantify some of these possibilities. Now, the Stern report and other writers have attempted to do that. It is a political minefield to wander into this area and say one person is right and the other person is wrong. I'm going to not try and do that this afternoon, but I want to tell you that the method of approaching this problem is, as far as the economists are concerned, the right one to try and think through these implications. Yes, there are scarce stories. Let's quantify them. Let's understand the mechanism. Let's pin down the trade-offs. What is it that's going to benefit us? What's it going to cost us? The mechanism is now relatively uncontroversial. Greenhouse gases in the atmosphere cause global warming. Global warming through melting the polar ice caps, through changing patterns of global weather, will have massive negative impact on human welfare. Open question there, how much? Measure it however you will. Nick Stern and others estimate that to be 20% of GDP, of the, annual, of the amount of goods and services we routinely produce. 20% is a large number. If you disagree with that number, you think it's bigger, plug that in to the calculations. What economics allows us to do is to feed our own quantitative assumptions into the analysis. The rest of the, the reasoning goes, greenhouse, produ greenhouse gas production is correlated with economic growth. Well, economic growth is otherwise a good thing, if 
we continue to have economic growth in the way that we have historically had, this will increase the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. This will bring about the 20% or 30% reduction in the production of goods and services worldwide. There is a trade-off. That trade-off helps us think about what changes we need to put in place now. Is it the 1% expenditure on GDP now, as Nick Stern and other people have argued, is needed? Is it the way in which we change the technology of economic growth to greener technologies that will then affect how greenhouse gas production works? This is an economic model at this point. And while we are still far away from a definitive answer, economists have through making this on paper formal and debatable, advanced the debate on how, on the things that we need to do on global warming. Let me turn now to examples where trade-offs seem to appear, but that economics tells us is illusory. The leading example of that is probably the so-called Phillips curve. Phillips, Bill Phillips was an economist here at the LSE who 50 years ago published a paper in Economica, which to this day remains the single most cited article. It's the paper that has generated more papers than any other paper in macroeconomics. Phillips's paper traced out the relation between unemployment and inflation over the last however many hundred years. Now obviously, he did not have data up through 1997. I have augmented his data set and sh to show that the conclusions that he came to still emerge in the data, but that those conclusions as interpreted by policymakers, we will see are unwarranted. This picture shows on the horizontal axis the rate of unemployment in the United Kingdom, and on the vertical axis the rate of wage inflation. The scatter of dots shows UK economic history over the last 150 years. UK economic history has been one where there has been a negative correlation between unemployment and inflation. Okay, for those of you who are in statistics or who are more quantitative inclined in economics, those words negatively correlated roll off the tongue, and we have to stop and think, what does that mean? Well, what it means in this picture, what it seems to mean in this picture, is that if you want unemployment on the horizontal axis to be lower, because you want more people employed, you want people to have jobs, you want people to have incomes, then what you need is for inflation to be higher. That's what negative correlation in this picture seems to suggest. When I carried out the kind of regression analysis that Phillips might have done on these newer samples of data, that regression coefficient is minus 0.60, which says, seemingly, that if you want the unemployment rate to fall by one percentage point, tolerate inflation that's higher by 0.6 percentage points. That trade-off, if it's there, seems to be a pretty good one. You bring people out of employment, you put them to work, they are productive members of society, and all you have to do is tolerate a little bit higher inflation. That's the Phillips curve. This Phillips curve was what underpinned central banking policy for the last 50 years up until the 1970s. When economic reasoning brought to bear on the mechanics and the fun foundations of this Phillips curve predicted that the Phillips curve was illusory. That if central bankers set to themselves the policy target of trying to lower the rate of unemployment by jacking up the rate of inflation, by tolerating a rate of inflation that's higher, what will happen, according to economists, is that Phillips curve turns vertical. The Phillips curve turning vertical then means that attempts to raise the rate of inflation in order seemingly to lower the rate of unemployment are doomed to failure. All that's going to happen is that you're going to raise the rate of inflation and continue to do that. The economic reasoning that underlies this is deceptively simple. Its implementation in the economics journals was horrendously technical, but economic reasoning is very simple. 
when wage inflation occurs, what happens is workers at first think they're getting a good deal. They're getting paid more, so they go to work. But then wage inflation feeds into price inflation. Tomorrow, they realize that the foodstuffs that they buy from groceries, the clothing that they purchase, the goods and services that they need to consume will also have risen in price. Their real wage after wage inflation has actually remained constant. There's no incentive to alter economic behavior from what it was previously. Patents, all patents of unemployment and employment are reinstated. And all that's happened is an increase in the rate of wage and price inflation with no change in unemployment. This basic lesson is something that you can get out of economics B. Its implementation in journals was difficult to understand, but central bankers eventually got it. And now, all over the world, central bankers practice inflation targeting. They say what we need to do is to get inflation to a certain range or a certain point, two percentage points, and we pay mind to everything else that's happening in the economy, but our goal, our mission, is to keep inflation at 2%. And according to the vertical Phillips curve, that's exactly the right thing to do. So this simple insight, which comes out of the most introductory economics that we can learn in university, has had profound implications on central banking, on the conduct of economic policy, and central bank behavior everywhere. It is an example of a trade-off, high unemployment or high inflation, that as policymakers and as concerned citizens, all of us grappled with for decades through the Phillips curve, development through the 1960s that economic reasoning of the very simplest kind then said was illusory. It's not really there. And there's profoundly changed practice out there. It's an example of a trade-off that's virtual and illusory. Let me turn now in the remaining 10 minutes or so that I have left for, for the delivery of this presentation to trade-offs that are substantive and seemingly hard but they're not necessarily what people think. I think for my money, one of the ex outstanding examples of that, something that fires policy discussion today, is the supposed trade-off between inequality and growth. Okay. This is sometimes expressed in e economist discussion as the Kuznets curve. The Kuznets curve, let me just remind people, is, can be stylized in the following way. On the horizontal axis in this picture, you put economies at different stages of development. With the left side, economies that are relatively underdeveloped, markets are not yet in place, industrial structure is primitive, the agricultural sector might be low productivity, people are basically scratching the earth to make soap to earn a living. On the right side of this picture, think about those economies that are relatively more developed. Everybody has broadband internet. They complain when you know, their internet service provider gone down for five minutes and they cannot get online to check Facebook. <laughs> Developed economies that are richer. The vertical axis here is a measure of inequality. Kuznets hypothesized 50 years ago that the process of economic development leads us through this inverted U-shaped relation that at low levels of development, when everybody is scratching the earth to make a living, we're all equally poor, we're all equally miserable. There's low level of inequality. As you move towards the right side of this picture, when economies are more developed, there's a lot of wealth go around. Economies are also relatively egalitarian again, either through a social safety net or through the well-functioning of markets through markets being so specialized that everybody has a skill that is going to be highly valued, there is egalitarianism at work yet again. In the middle of this is the process of development. As economies begin to build institutions and structures and markets, some people get more ahead of the race than others. They become rich or super rich, inequality rises, and then after that declines again as the process of development continues. This is the Kuznets curve. It offered to observers and policymakers a putative trade-off. If you look at the left side of this picture from where you're viewing it, it says, yes, I could potentially set my economy off 
on this path of pell-mell, curly-burly, rapid economic growth, try and catch up with everybody else in stages of development. But hey, you know what's going to happen is some people are going to get really rich, other people are going to be left behind. I'm going to be looking at a society where the, the social fabric is fraught with tension. There is a trade-off. Do I go for economic growth or do I end? tolerate the high inequality that emerges at the same time as that happens. This was Kuznets. Kuznets was no flaming left-wing liberal. He was just calling the facts as he saw them. This was the data that he had in the 1950s. And since then, even propaganda organs of left-wing liberalism, like the Wall Street Journal, have picked up on this. So they pointed out Look what's happening in China. Okay, so here, the horizontal axis is time. The vertical axis is once again inequality. China is the blue line that I would like to, you to cast your eye towards. China, from the beginning of liberalization in the early 1980s, in 1979, when Peng Xiaoping announced and then pushed through liberalization of at least the urban part of China, China was a socialist economy. Its Gini coefficients, inequality, was low, the level of 30%, 28%. That is a boring level of inequality. That's the kind of inequality that you see in, well, in Belgium. It is an egalitarian society. The Wall Street Journal correctly observed that as liberalization continued, inequality rose and began to rise quite rapidly. Towards the end of the sample in 2004, inequality had risen to almost 48% in Gini coefficient. If the beginning was Belgium, 48% is the United States. China now has a level of inequality that's as high as the United States. Right here is this first part of the Kuznets curve, so it must seem. Right here is where economic development proceeds. Inequality is rising together with all the tensions that were implicit in that first part of the Kuznets curve. Right. Step back from this description and ask, okay, you're an economist. Identify the trade-off. Well, there is the trade-off as big as this, the 500-pound gorilla in the room. It is the trade-off between inequality and growth. That trade-off, if this is right, if Kuznets was right, and if the Chinese experience is informative, is incontrovertible. There's nothing you can do about it. All that remains for us to do is to find where on that trade-off you want to sit, or alternatively, come up with some means of assessing the relative misery that inequality inflicts on society versus the good that economic growth brings about. Here, different people have different ways of doing it. My own way of doing it is to say, if you're really concerned about inequality, well, what you're really concerned about is poverty. What you're concerned about is the people left at the bottom of the income distribution. Other things equal, the higher is inequality, the more people there are who are miserably, miserably poor. Okay? Well, flip our perspective from inequality to poverty. Okay. Incidentally, the Chinese example is not, you know, it's not unique in the world. Everywhere you look in the world, even in the United States, it's already relatively developed. The most recent stages of, of economic growth have brought about higher inequality, which is fodder for the way the democratic candidates are arguing about globalization and the, the, the usefulness of trade. Leave that to one side. That's a discussion that we can also have. Let's think about poverty just for a second. Poverty is a global phenomenon. Those people that I said were on the left side of the Kuznets curve, you know, there are still people there. There are still over a billion people living on less than a dollar a day. So to give some perspective on this discussion, the world now, the average person on earth now, earns about $20 a day. Okay? Correcting for purchasing power parity. People who live in rich countries earn on average, you know, the bottom end of the rich country spectrum, earn $30 a day. 2030. People who are living in poor countries or underdeveloped countries, the World Bank counts them up, they're people who live on less than $10 a day. There are a billion people in the world who live on less than a dollar a day. This is poor beyond what most of us will ever see. 
So let's check out world poverty. In this table, I have documented in the third row of this history of world poverty over the last 25 years, the same length of time that it took the Federal Reserve System to, to drop interest rates by 75 basis points. Okay, that number there indicates the count of people living in the world, living on less than a dollar a day. In 1981, the world, world population was about four and a half billion. One and a half billion of those, a third of those people, lived on less than a dollar a day. If you cast your eye rightwards on the horizontal, on the long, that row, what you see is a happy outcome of the economic growth that has occurred in the last 25 years. The number of world's poor has fallen from one and a half billion to now under a billion. Now, for many of us, you might say that's still a billion too many. But hey, a billion is a lot better than one and a half billion. Also remember, the world's population now is in excess of 6.3 billion. So the fraction of the world that's poor now is smaller than before. Good things have happened in the world as, as a result of econ the economic growth that has occurred. Okay, as far as the Millennium Development Goals are concerned, we're well on our way to, to meeting that. Wait a minute. We were just looking at China and the, the, uh, the rampant inequality that arose there. Let's dig into what's happened with Chinese poverty. So do the same calculations for simply people who live in China. 25 years ago, the number of people who lived on less than a dollar a day in China, correcting for purchasing power parity, was in excess of 600 million. The number of people today in China who live on less than a dollar a day is 128 million, around there. Do the sums. Take 128 away from 634. That's a little bit over half a billion. A little bit over half a billion Chinese who were lifted out of poverty, even as the Wall Street Journal lamented how inequality had risen so dramatically in over the last 25 years. But wait, there's more. Half a billion Chinese being lifted out of poverty. I've seen that number. I saw that number just five seconds ago. That's exactly the same number of people in the world altogether lifted out of less than a dollar a day poverty. Oh my God, everybody who's become richer in the world is Chinese. That's not, of course, true. What's happened is that most of the world, in all the rest of the world, some people have gotten richer, some people have become poorer, but in so far as the world is on its way to meeting the Millennium Development Goals, it is thanks to this growing, highly unequal, rapidly emerging economy in China. Okay. The same conclusion, incidentally, um, I've given this talk, some of you might have seen that, and you've asked also about the dollar a day threshold, how misleading that is. Actually, the same conclusions pretty much emerge when you do this calculation at different levels of poverty. Let me not do that now. Um, let me take up five more minutes of your time and talk about the last economic problem I want to lay before us and talk about that in terms of trade-offs. And then ask what economists, by thinking like economists, have contributed to the policy discussion. I want to turn to the problem of intellectual property rights. Now, this might seem, for many of us, uh, a little bit of a departure from the grand problems of global warming, world poverty, that we've just been discussing. Okay. But if you pause and think for a minute, most the answer to the question why some places prosper and thrive and others just suck has a lot to do with the application of technology with progress in technology. The application of science and technology, new ways of doing things, new ways of running managerial processes, businesses, science and technology. The progress, progress in science and technology is an increase in intellectual assets. Intellectual assets are protected in the world by an intellectual property rights system. Intellectual property rights give incentive for people, for scientists and companies, pharmaceutical or otherwise, to develop new ideas, to push forward the frontiers of science and technology, to bring about economic growth, and through the process of economic growth, through the bone-crunching process of economic growth, lower the rate of poverty in the world. Intellectual property rights are a peculiar kind of animal. For the last 150, 200 years, economists have struggled, have now and then thought hard about, and then turned away from, 
thinking about the economics of intellectual property rights. Why? Because intellectual property rights, while they provide incentive for technology to advance, also curtail the use of technologies. Intellectual property rights, by protecting, by in artificially increasing the price on the use of technologies, prevent the dissemination of scientific ideas and prevent its application everywhere in the world. It is very different from ordinary property rights for other goods and services that we learn about in economics. Again, this might still seem esoteric. On the other hand, if, like me, you spend three hours a day on Facebook, you will already realize that if you're one of the 600,000 people a day who play Scrabble on Facebook, eating up all the time you should be marking student essays, <laughs> you will know that the two brothers in India who implemented Scrabble on Facebook are now being taken to court by Hasbro and Mattel for violating intellectual property rights, their intellectual property rights on this game, Scrabble. The trade-off here is that Hasbro and Mattel argue that it took protection of intellectual property rights, generally, for people to be incentivized to come up with nifty new games. The counter-argument from the two brothers in India and other users of Scrabble is that, look, Scrabble is an idea the fact that we're using Scrabble on this Facebook page does not at all remove your property from you. You are still free to sell all the Scrabble sets that you wish. In fact, the fact that so many people are now playing Scrabble on Facebook has actually increased the demand for the Scrabble sets that you will sell. There's a tension here being played out in the, in the court system between the incentive to produce a new product and the efficiency with which humanity gets to use and disseminate new ideas. If you think that Facebook and Scrabble is a little bit too flippant, reflect a bit that intellectual property rights, that same kind of tension shows up in every market that's transacted on the World Wide Web. The from the exchange of music and digital entertainment, from the proliferation and usefulness of computer software and operating systems, and indeed, from the use of pharmaceuticals HIV, AIDS, antiretrovirals, and other pharmaceuticals, the same tension emerges. Do we endow the people who have intellectual property rights over these products to artificially elevate price and curtail the dissemination of these products? Or do we allow poorer people in the world who could not otherwise afford these products, usage of these products, and simply swallow the criticism that these medications will simply, through a gray market route, show up again in the richer economies. This is a real substantive problem. It is nowhere a more important problem than in Africa, where you know, the continent holds the highest concentration of HIV AIDS medication, uh, HIV AIDS infection. It's also the single poorest concentration in the world, the population that simply cannot afford the kind of antiretroviral medication that's available elsewhere in the world. This is a question, again, of incentives to create and then own the product versus the monopoly markup that's available to pharmaceutical companies and other holders of intellectual property rights that curtail their dissemination. It is a trade-off, and that trade-off can be understood in terms of a simple economics B picture. There's a demand curve and a supply curve. Other things equal, they would meet at the quantity Q0, which is the equilibrium market clearing quantity where price equals marginal cost, HIV, AIDS, antiretroviral medication would then trade at the price that companies would need to produce it. Instead, what intellectual property rights do is they remove that intersection as an outcome and they say instead, intellectual property rights allow the operation of a monopoly What's relevant for the demand curve then is the marginal revenue curve that emerges from there. Equilibrium occurs when marginal revenue equals marginal cost at the lower quantity Q1 and price is artificially marked up to the demand curve. Okay. Quick refresher, if you've seen this picture before then it's all old hat and I have to run through it. If you haven't, well you might need to take a, a minute or two to think through these discussions. 
Economists have gone away and used that picture and asked, what impact has that had on world welfare? Well, India, for a quarter of a century between 1972 and their accession to the World Trade Organization, practiced an intellectual property rights regime where process, processes for producing pharmaceuticals were protected, but not the final product. The idea that chemical formula itself was not protected, but if you had a good way to produce it, well, I would give you ownership of that good way of producing it. The result was there was free and open competition in the production of certain kinds of pharmaceuticals, exactly the pharmaceuticals that were most required by the Indian consumer. You then have, in economic parlance, a natural experiment where a change in the operating regime allowed distinguishing the two different kinds of equilibrium. And you can trace out the welfare loss that emerges from the operating of the intellectual property rights system versus the gain to people from having allowed, being allowed to purchase goods and services in a free and open market. Bottom line, India benefited to the tune of 10 times what the profits would have been for pharmaceutical companies if intellectual property rights had been in place. With the use of hindsight, if India had known that this was going to occur, what they could well have done was not become, for all practical purposes, a pariah in intellectual property rights discussion, but simply written a check to pharmaceutical companies that was one-tenth, whose value was one-tenth of the good that that would bring to the welfare of the Indian population because of the violation of the intellectual property rights. This is a trade-off that's quantifiable and whose policy implication is stark and apparent. Let me conclude. What I've told you about in this very quick pass-through of the world's economic problems is how a certain view about economics based on trade-offs between good and bad, based on costs and benefits, can be used to enlighten discussion, and in some cases, actually influence policymakers. Okay. Sure, there are assumptions involved here. There's modeling to be done. You make certain assumptions about people's behavior. Some of those assumptions are heroic, but you begin somewhere, and then you refine and you improve, and that's what economic research is. You put numbers from the real world on the concepts that you are discussing, and then the conclusion that you come up with often, in happy circumstances, has profound impact on the welfare of the world. Thank you. <laughs>